Welcome everybody to another episode of the Newburton Intellectual History Series. Um, I am Lina Weber from the University of St. Andrews. Today I'm talking with René Kukuk. René is Assistant Professor of Political History at the University of Utrecht in the Netherlands. And we will talk about his book, The Citizenship Experiment, that was published in Brill's Studies in the History of Political Thought series in 2019. Uh, welcome, René. Thank you for talking to me. And um, let us start with, um, with your book. Can you tell us a bit about what led you to write the book? Yes, uh, thank you for having me, uh, Lina. Um, so um, the book grew out of my uh, a dissertation that I wrote as a, as a PhD student um, at Utrecht University. Um, and I guess the, the, the long road to my book is one that started when I, um, when I was doing my bachelor's degree in history um, as a second or, or third year uh, student. And um, uh, motivated by, by a couple of, of lecturers, great lecturers, then I, I started to take an interest in historical questions about, about citizenship. So, so what, does it, what does it mean to be a citizen um, who is considered eligible for citizenship and under what conditions? Um, to what extent should uh, citizens participate in politics? So these kind of questions. Um, and, and I soon I sort of realized that I, I was not only interested in these questions, let's say from a sort of uh, purely a legal perspective or a formal perspective, but, but I was also very much interested in, in, in the underlying um, intellectual traditions within which citizenship was discussed, um, and also more broadly in, in political philosophy and history of political thought. Now, um, I had the privilege of being supervised by a number of extraordinary uh, lecturers and supervisors um, who, in their work, dealt a lot with citizenship in, in the Netherlands, uh, in, in Heidelberg, where I was a visiting student, and uh, also in Cambridge, where I did an, an MPhil in political thought. Um, so that's sort of the, the sort of the long, uh, let's say, background to the to the uh, uh, dissertation and the book. But I guess the the sort of more immediate motivation, um, so what really triggered me to begin the research project, um, was that I wanted to to rethink. Um, the age of revolutions as a turning point in the history of citizenship. So in the long history, long-term history of citizenship, what 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 kind of turning point was the age of Atlantic revolutions? Um, and so in, I think if you look at the historiography of, of the age of Atlantic revolutions, um, you can sort of crudely distinguish two, two strands. Um, and, and one is, is, I think, associated with uh, Robert Palmer and the Age of Democratic Revolution, um, and also, I think, by the French historian uh, Jacques Audichot. Uh, um, so they both published in the, in the late 1950s and early 1960s on the Age of the Democratic Revolution, and, and they really gave sort of this framework of one revolutionary movement, uh, sort, of, sort of trying to give coherence to, to what was a multitude of revolutions and rebellions. And I really tried to situate them in, in one single framework. Um, but of course, there's also a tradition of historians, um, which was, of course, much older and also more powerful, at least until, let's say, the 1990s, that tried to study revolutions in their national frameworks. And so they tried to, tended to stress the difference uh, and the differences between the revolutions. And um, French, French historians saying, their revolution was unique and exceptional um, and of world historical importance, of course. 
<laughs> and, uh, and American revolutionary uh, American historians mm -hmm. saying uh, the same uh, about the American Revolution. So I think uh, there's, a, there's sort of the, the, the one framework and the many framework, and, and both are, are somewhat attractive as sort of they provide the sort of ordinary or of, um, orderly presentation uh, to, to what was a highly chaotic and complex uh, era. Um, and here, here, here I wanted to sort of tell another story. So. Um, what I'm trying to, to do in the book is to is to tell a narrative, uh, one might say, uh, about the transformation of, of common ideals that revolutionaries held in this period. And I'm trying to tell this story in terms of a sort of convergence, sort of coming together, of, of, of having a sense of being part of a, of a larger revolutionary project, and then in terms of divergence, so that at some point this, this unity was broken down. So I'm trying to sort of historicize uh, this idea of a common revolutionary movement. Um, and I think that that story was sort of uh, being told by other historians uh, a little bit, and I want to sort of um, give my own uh, interpretation of this, 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 this revolutionary movement as a moment of, as a movement of um, yeah, converging ideals and at some point uh, diverging uh, ideals. And this is, I guess, also where, where sort of my interest in citizenship um, 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 hooks up with, with my interest in the age of Atlantic revolutions, because, uh, of course, you, you can't sort of deal with all revolutionary ideals as well out there. So my focus here was on, on the uh, idea and ideals of, uh, of citizenship. Oh, yeah, you, you already kind of started talking about um, your book Precisely. And can you maybe give us a bit more of a sense of what is the main argument of, of your book? So what did you focus on? Yeah, sure. Um, so I guess a, a sort of accessible and good way um, of summarizing um, what the book does uh, is saying that it weaves together three stories, um, three stories that are usually told separately. Um, the first one is what I what I sort of just sketched a bit is this the idea of a convergence and divergence of a transatlantic revolutionary uh, political discourse. Um, second story, I guess, would be the the evaluation and re-evaluation of uh, of the concept of of citizenship. Um, and the third would be yeah, what what might be called in, in perhaps a, a bit a technical. To sort of the discursive repercussions of the Haitian Revolution and the um, French Revolutionary Terror. So, sort of to to get a sense of the book. So chronologically, I focus on the 1790s, the turbulent decade of the 1790s, um, and geographically, the book deals with uh, public debates in three countries: so France, uh, the United States and uh, the Dutch uh, Republic, which is, I suppose, a bit less well-known among Anglophone listeners of this program. <laughs> um, now, I, uh, I used, the, the, I used sort of the, the public representation and contestation of the Haitian Revolution and the terror as, as lenses, as, sort of as, as a lens to zoom in on debates about uh, the scope and uh, uh, meaning of, of uh, citizenship. Now, sort of the, in a nutshell, sort of the main arguments I'm trying to make in the book um, is that by the end of the 1790s, um, this idea of, of maybe an imagined unity of an Atlantic revolutionary movement um, was shattered. 
um, uh, by the intellectual and public uh, repercussions um, of the Haitian Revolution and the terror. So the, the, the Haitian Revolution and the terror triggered certain responses, certain reactions among revolutionaries on both sides of the uh, Atlantic Ocean um, and led them to yeah, what, what, I, what I describe as a sort of abandoning of this notion of an Atlantic revolutionary vision of citizenship. Um, so what we then see is, is much more nationalized um, conception, nationalized articulation of citizenship. So by the end of the 1790s, I, for example, uh, quote a lot of Dutch and American um, uh, publicists and um, uh, journalists saying what we are uh, supposed to develop is an American type of citizenship or a Dutch type of citizenship. In any case, not a French type of citizenship. Um, so you, you, you really get a sense of it. Whereas earlier in the 1790s, you see um, uh, a common sort of feeling that, hey, hey, look, we are part of a larger revolutionary movement and we defend the same principles. And you see a lot of um, French, Americans and, and Dutchmen uh, uh, and making this claim, we are speaking the same language, we are sharing some uh, on some level the same principles. Um, by the end of the 1790s, that is basically gone, even among those who were formerly uh, enthusiastic sort of transatlantic uh, revolutionaries. Um, so, uh, and I call this this sort of this moment of this falling apart. Um, I call that uh, an, an Atlantic thermidor. And uh, Thermidor is, is a, uh, um, that refers, of course, to the fall of uh, uh, Robespierre, Maximilien Robespierre, who, on, uh, according to the French Revolutionary uh, calendar, uh, um, came under the uh, guillotine on uh, 9th Thermidor year two, which was in uh, late, late July 1794. And this, this term, uh, Thermidor, um, refers to this, this immediate period following the fall of Robespierre, so post-terror uh, political culture in France. Uh, but this term Thermidor also refers to a sort of uh, the, the shattering of the supposed ideological unity of the French Revolution. Uh, so it was also a sort of dividing line, a moment uh, of reflection, a moment of reaction. And the argument I'm making in the book is that this sort of moment of shattering of the ideological unity of a of a revolutionary ideal was also an Atlantic process. And I'm trying to show that sort of by, by looking at reactions and responses uh, to the um, French revolutionary terror and the Haitian revolution. That's, that's really fascinating. Was there, for you when, you, when you conducted the research for the book, was there anything that you found particularly surprising or really interesting that you didn't expect to find? Uh, yes, absolutely. Um, and I guess that, that would certainly be the, um, the question about the significance um, and meaning of the Haitian revolution uh, in the age of revolutions. Um, and also the Haitian revolution in, in relation to questions of equal citizenship and, and, and who is eligible for citizenship. Um, now, of course, um, I'm fully aware that, that, let's say, the Haitian revolution is now all over the place. <laughs> um, uh, many books and articles appear every year 
um, with a greater acceleration every year or so, um, which is great uh, because there's a lot of catching up to do. Um, um, but I guess, or at least in my reading, 10 years ago, this was completely different. It has, it has really picked up steam in, in uh, over the last decade. But what I, when I started with the research project in 2010, 2011, um, you, you would find hardly any references to the Haitian Revolution, especially in, when you're sort of working as PhD students, working through the secondary literature and reading, say, the, the, the literature from, from the 70s, the 80s and the 90s. And I, there were just hardly any references at all to what had happened there. Um, and I sort, of, I sort of remember reading um, uh, the books by, um, for example, Laurent Dubois and David Gagas, sort of two, two very influential uh, uh, scholars um, of the last couple of decades. In the field of Haitian revolutionary studies, and I sort of, I was sort of, I was sort of really struck by, wow, why, why, why didn't I have any clue about what, what, what had happened on this island and what sort of repercussions it had for, for debates um, uh, about uh, uh, citizenship. So then I, I sort of did, and this was when it was in the second or third year of my research project. So, and I, and, and I sort of immediately realized that I, ca I cannot write this book without taking into uh, account the, um, the Haitian revolution. So I started uh, digging into the primary sources, uh, French, American, uh, Dutch primary sources, and, it, and, and, I, and I was just uh, amazed about uh, how many responses there were actually to the events, to the slave rebellion, but also to the, the earlier phases in which the free people of color uh, claimed equal citizenship rights um, in Dutch newspapers, in Dutch parliamentary debates, um, in, in all kinds of American publications and, and newspapers, and of course in France uh, because it was uh, it concerned them quite uh, quite directly. Um, so that was really sort of the, my uh, really an eye opener uh, for me, and it and, and it ended up being really a, a huge part of the the argument of the book. Um, and more specifically, what I sort of found was that um, I found a lot of patterns, parallel ways of reasoning um, in in Dutch and American and French public discourse. And that the main um, sort of reaction was that many uh, Dutchmen and Frenchmen and Americans saw the Haitian Revolution basically as a sort of as a failed experiment. Uh, so the French tried to export certain um, Universalistic ideals of equality to Saint Domingue, and whether they that whether they actually did that or not is is not sort of the question I'm interested in. But that was how it was perceived in in in, in Dutch public discourse and American discourse, and um, the uh, the sort of uh, the consequence of that was that they said, well, this is what you get if you try to export mm -hmm. revolutionary citizenship ideals to an island with so many enslaved people, it's, 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 it's bound up to become a disaster. And, and why is that? Well, because um, um, they saw um, formerly enslaved people of African descent, or enslaved people of African descent, as not being civilized. So essentially, what they were saying was, these revolutionary ideals that we um, propounded were really meant for 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 peoples that were civilized, that were to some extent enlightened, and of course this is this is an, uh, a, a famous sort of way of reasoning that also 
um, uh, returns in the 19th and also in the 20th centuries. But at the time, um, for example, you see a lot of Dutch uh, people reflect and say, well, um, these people are still in their sort of infantile stage of civilization, so they should not be eligible for citizenship. Mm -hmm. So, so you get a sort of mobilization of a um, enlightenment discourse of progress and backwardness and a sort of these four stages theories of the progress of um, uh, philosophical progress of history being mobilized to exclude certain groups um, from citizenship. So it's a sort of a sort of inequality, but then in terms of, of civilizational progress. Um, and that was really something that I, I didn't uh, think of uh, when I started the project, that I would find this. Uh, and it ended up as, as being a sort of a huge part of the book. Right. And and can you, you so you already you already said so there is a chronological element to your book and you also what's always um I think a great merit is if you look at different discourses or kind of yeah, you said you, you looked at the French, the American and, and Dutch sources and you have quite a broad source basis. And the challenge I personally had um in in my research as well is how do you construct a narrative? out of something like that. Um, so can you maybe tell us a bit about the structure of the book? So how did you how did you do it? Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, and the first thing, and that's, uh, I think, um, the difficulty or uh, the, the challenge of doing a, a comparative um, uh, history um, is that the units you are comparing are, are always a little bit different from each other. and to some extent the same yeah. <laughs> and, and especially with <laughs> and you sort of have to sort of um, um, make sense of, of this uh, um, uh, the, 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 the differences and the, and the commonalities and I and what I um, what I find striking um, uh, when you look at the Dutch Republic and France and the United States um, uh, in the 1790s is that they are sort of in, in different stages of their let's say, revolutionary uh, trajectory or revolutionary career. So clearly, uh, if you take the, 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 the year 1793-1794, um, um, the United States is, is, is essentially a post-revolutionary society. Um, I mean, they've, they've signed the Constitution, the war is over, they've got a Bill of Rights, and they've, they've started a new, they're starting sort of a new experiment um, with, with democratic politics in the 1790s. Whereas France is then in, in really in the middle of and, and, and even the most violent phase of, of the revolution. Whereas the Netherlands, um, the revolution only takes off in 1795, the so-called Batavian Revolution only takes off in 1795. So there are sort of different stages um, in, in, uh, in which these three uh, countries are uh, during, during the course of the 1790s. And um, um, sort of part of the, the, uh, the, the, the narrative that I'm trying to say is that uh, the ways in which um, people reflected on the Haitian Revolution and the Revolutionary Terror were very much bound up with the, the, the sort of specific political context mm -hmm. in which um, uh, these speeches or, or pamphlets uh, were actually uh, uh, written. Um, so, um, and of course, also uh, in terms of how, how do you sort of um, uh, present uh, the, the narrative of your book, I think another sort of uh, uh, aspect of my approach is, um, is that uh, Americans and 
uh, Dutchmen didn't see the revolutionary terror. Uh, that's very much a sort of historiographical concept, a deeply contested historiographical concept. And, and when you look at the from the perspective of the 20th century, it has been also been interpreted in light of totalitarian regimes. Um, and we know much more about what actually happened in that period than the people then. So what I'm sort of in terms of my approach, what I'm trying to do is to really sort of so first sketch, okay, what were the first reactions to what they saw? What did they see? What did they hear? So I'm trying to sort of reconstruct, okay, they first hear about popular violence. They, 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 they hear about arbitrary arrests. They hear about a, a situation of international war. So that's sort of the, the sort of um, things they responded to. They didn't respond to the terror as a sort of historiographical concept. And I think the, 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 the same very much applies uh, to the Haitian revolution in the sense that um, actually most people didn't see the Haitian revolution as the Haitian revolution. What they saw was a slave rebellion in the French colonial empire. Mm -hmm. And that was, that's a very different kind of sort of perspective uh, than with hindsight, seeing it as sort of the beginning of a, of a, a new independent black state in, 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 in the Caribbean. Um, so, in, and so what I'm trying to do, in the, in the, in the, especially in the, the first part of the book, is basically about the repercussions of the Haitian Revolution, and the second part of the book is, is basically about the, uh, the reactions and responses to the French terror. What I really try to do is to sort of work my way up from the sources um, to, to sort of broader, more abstract reflections on what these people uh, uh, were seeing at the time, and sort of not assume beforehand that they that they saw a revolution yep. in Haiti yeah. or in Saint-Domingue, for example. Um, uh, and I hope sort of thereby has sort of to work my way from ground up to, uh, uh, to more, uh, uh, let's say, broader and larger uh, reflections on these, um, these events um, um, that I sort of yeah, stay true to what they were seeing. And you already you already mentioned I think you already answered uh, the next question um, to a fair bit but maybe you could just summarize how do you think your book contributes um, or maybe it even changes uh, your research field? Yeah, uh, that's a good question. So, uh, so sort of what I what I um, hope um, is that the the book might also be a little bit of a well, a model maybe might be too much to uh, sort of hope hope for, uh, but sort of give an illustration of um, how to analyze um, transnational um, political movements. Um, so what I found sort of interesting was this uh, that uh, you, you often find a moment of of converging ideals, whether it's for example, nowadays, I don't know, climate activism or mm -hmm. uh, perhaps uh, um, uh, populism or whatever, sort of transnational movements that sort of find each other, people finding each other around a sort of set of ideals, um, that this moment of convergence often um, is being stopped by certain events or by certain uh, big uh, 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 moment where people start to reassess, like, oh, do I actually want to be part of this larger international or transnational mm -hmm. movement? And then, um, and also this, the moment of convergence often um, uh, shapes the ideals and, and ideas of such movements. 
so had for so when for example dutch um uh, revolutionaries in the 1790s uh reflected on their own situation they they sort of always sort of try to to lift the dutch batavian revolution to the level of hey we are part of a larger project mm -hmm. uh, we are part of a larger revolutionary movement and this should actually sort of make us realize that what we are doing is very important and, and, and that we actually share a certain set of principles with others. Um, um, and, and I think we, you can see that in, in, in movements nowadays as well. So that this process of, of, of realizing that one is uh, a part of a larger movement actually shapes the, the ideas and ideals of a certain movement. But the thing, the sort of the next step is also that once this sort of revolutionary movement or movement of political activists falls apart, then you also sort of see how this divergence, so this moment of disillusionment, this moment of, oh no, I don't want to be part of this kind of project, also sort of um, has an influence on how uh, political ideas and political ideals sort of develop over time. And I think historically there are sort of other moments um, where you can sort of try to, to apply this kind of um, 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 analysis. Great. So, Great. Is, so this is this what you expect readers and researchers and also maybe students to, to get from the book that will be significant for them? So that's definitely, that's, so that's, that's a one part and that maybe also more sort of from a, from a methodological, methodological yeah. or approach kind of um, uh, perspective. Um, more in terms of content, I, I really hope that when students um, sort of turn to the age of Atlantic revolutions to think about citizenship, mm -hmm. that um, uh, uh, they will sort of immediately take account into account the, the imperial and colonial imperial dimension of citizenship. So what when I when I sort of read handbooks or short introductions to uh, the history of citizenship, you always find the late 18th century as a moment of, okay, this is the moment when citizens became citizens of a nation state, mm -hmm. right? Uh, this is a moment of, of civic, when civic equality was declared. Um, uh, this is a moment of uh, the, the, uh, when citizenship was written into constitutions. And so in that sense, they had always sort of this, this idea of, okay, this was a very important turning point. And I think for, for all these um, reasons, it's much to be said that it's, it, it's an important turning point. But then you also miss a lot of what <laughs> is actually important uh, in, in that particular period. Um, and one has to do, of course, with um, with the sort of the imperial dimension that was there. I mean, both the Dutch Republic and the French Empire uh, and the French uh, Republic were were empires at the moment, at that moment. And of course, the United States was also a, a huge uh, slaveholding continental empire. You might even uh, mm. uh, say. And that, that is also part of the, the, the moment of, of um, uh, uh, the construction and shaping of citizenship ideals that also, of course, left their legacy in the 19th and, and 20th century. Great. Um, one last question, uh, René. So how would you say your book fits with your, with your current work? So in my in my new project, and I'm glad you bring this up um, because I, I find it very fascinating myself, which is of course always good as you as an yeah. academic writer, <laughs> your research fascinating. 
it's uh, it's it's a bit it's a bit it's it's not uh, entirely disconnected from 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 questions of citizenship, but it is a new direction, I'd say. Um, it's about um, the history of reparations for historical injustices. So um, I think usually when people think of reparations as a restitution, compensation, and so forth for historical injustices, they they think of the period after the Second World War. Uh, so, for example, the restitution programs uh, for uh, victims of the Holocaust and descendants of victims of the Holocaust, uh, restitution and compensation programs for um, uh, uh, colonial uh, uh, questions, for example, in the Netherlands, but also with Great Britain. Um, and, of course, uh, nowadays, almost on a well weekly or perhaps monthly basis, you see in the news some kind of uh, reparations case uh, being discussed, whether it's the Catholic Church or um, another colonial uh, scandal, um, and so on. Um, so, so many people think of, associate the the rise of of the idea of reparations with this this post-war uh, era, uh, sort of post-war historical and moral consciousness that emerged after the Second World War. And what I'm trying to do in my in my new research project is to is to see, okay, where do the, these ideas and practices of reparations actually come from? They didn't, they didn't suddenly emerge after the Second World War. So, is there what is the, the sort of the long-term, larger history of of the idea of, of reparations uh, and and also the, the emergence of the rise of, of an, hist an historical injustice? Um, and I trace this back to the 17th and 18th and 19th century in a couple of case studies. Um, and that is actually what I'm working on right now, uh, today, even. <laughs> <laughs> well, fantastic. Um, thank you very much, René, for um, talking with me about your book and giving an overview on the results. Thank you very much, Elina. Very great questions.